Before we begin, we'll have us a word of prayer. Kathy is traveling. She's gone down to uh, Florida for a little vacation. One of her uh, best friends growing up, uh, the two of those girls gone down there. Hopefully, they make it back. Wilma, you think they'll be in jail before they get back somewhere between here and Georgia? <laughs> but anyway, she's traveling. We're thankful that uh, she got there safely, and uh, they're going to be coming back tomorrow. So let's keep her in our prayers. Uh, let's continue to pray for all those we have uh, on a prayer list. We have uh, uh, several of them. Uh, uh, Foster and Ann's great-grandson's uh, wife. Let's keep her in our prayers. Uh, oh, not great. Oh, great-grandson. Uh, okay. I, I was thought I heard uh, someone say great-grandson. Okay. That was you. You may see, I read, the, I read the email in and I knew what it was and then Clay messed me up. Their grandson, Wesley, uh, keep uh, his wife and, and, and him in, in, uh, in our prayers. Uh, Nell, uh, let's continue to remember her. She is recovering. Susan, she's recovering. Mary Kay is, is recovering. And we're thankful for those who are getting better. So let's, uh, uh, continue to pray and be thankful for them. Is there anyone that we uh, need an update on or we're not aware of? Okay, make sure we check out our prayer list. Uh, I would like to mention my friend up in uh, uh, Clark Range, Tennessee, up in Fentress County on hospice care. spoke with uh, my friend yesterday, and it's his father. I grew up over there uh, uh, just about living with them in their house from time to time. And uh, he is uh, in the final stages of his life, uh, has a very uh, rare form of appendix cancer. I'd never heard of appendix cancer. They don't really even know how to treat it. Uh, they normally treat it like you would colon cancer, but that's not effective. And so, um, uh, if you would, keep, keep them in your prayers. Uh, they're not Christians. And that's going to make it even more difficult later on. Uh, for my friend. But anyway, if you would keep them in, in your prayers, I'd appreciate that greatly. <clears throat> Let's go to God in prayer. Most Holy Father, we're so thankful for your uh, willingness to allow us to be in this world. We're thankful for thy Son and for the plan of salvation that we can obey. Father, we're thankful that we're allowed to gather together today and study from the Word and, and study uh, at this time the history of the church. And we pray that it uh, helps to build our faith that we might be stronger servants in the kingdom. It's our prayer this day that your providence will be upon those that we mentioned, those who are continuing to uh, get better. We're so thankful for that, and we pray that that uh, keeps going. We pray for those uh, that we know of who are coming toward the ends of their lives. Father, we pray that you to bless them, that they might be comfortable if uh, they're not able to overcome this, but we want them to be able to do that. We pray for their health that they could in some way uh, be better through some kind of a treatment of the doctors and that you'd bless them. We pray that you'd bless our work here as we reach out to those around us and bless our study. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, we'll do just a little bit of a, a background. Martin is going to be uh, uh, recording our class here on church history, and we didn't do that last time. We do just a very quick background of where we were. We began with this idea of history, studying church history. History is not 
uh, logically deduced. It's simply studied. It's not like mathematics or science or or anything like that. It simply is to be studied. History is history. It is what it is. And we go back and we can learn from it. Uh, we can learn from the mistakes of the past and we can learn from the successes of the past. And that's what we need to do, especially when we consider church history and as we look at the things that uh, happened. And I believe that if we study it properly and we get a good understanding of the development of church history and the things that the early Christians faced, and they faced uh, uh, huge obstacles uh, that we can live our lives and uh, be able to face our problems in a little better way when we can understand that really the, the issues that we face, at least for those of us who live in this country, are not nearly as bad as the people we read about in the first century and in a lot of places still in the world today. So we have it pretty good in this country. And, and I, I'm thankful to God that we live in this country, that we're born here. I'm thankful for the United States. I believe, in my opinion, the greatest nation that has ever existed in the history of the world. That doesn't make us perfect. That doesn't mean our leaders are doing what we want them to do. In fact, right now they're not. But still, we are able to live under uh, uh, a constitution that provides for our religious freedom. And so as we read and study through the history of the church, we learn pretty quickly they didn't live under things uh, such as that. We notice that when Christ came into the world, uh, the world was uh, living in sin, it was lost in sin. Of course, that was the history of the world from almost the very beginning, right? Uh, mankind, humanity began to get off track fairly early in its existence. Prior to Adam and Eve ever even having their first child, they sinned against God. They were uh, dismissed from the garden. And uh, it wasn't long till even worse sins began to happen. Uh, however long it was, uh, we're not told the ages of Cain and Abel. They were grown men. They very well could have had some age on them. I don't know. People lived to be very old at that time. A man of 100 was just in his youth. Can you imagine that? Adam lived to be almost a thousand years old, not much younger than Methuselah. And so the sin continued to happen and to pile up. And so when Christ came, uh, the world was in terrible shape. But at the time He came was the perfect time. We talked about some of the belief systems that were going on at the time of the Roman Empire. We talked about this idea of geocentricity the idea that uh, the earth was the center of the universe and that the Mediterranean area was the uh, the center of the world. And it was a good place. Evidently, it was the perfect place for Christ to, in, uh, in which for Christ to live in that area. And we talked about that saying, didn't we? All roads lead to Rome. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the fullness of time in a few moments. Um, during the Roman rule, many men uh, and philosophers tried to explain the great question that I think has been asked from almost the beginning of time anyway. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I going? What's after this life? Because once people begin to, to see others die, then that's the first question, right? What happens after death? 
Is this all we have to look forward to? Because if it is, we're a sad bunch of people, aren't we? If this life is all we have to look forward to, not that this life isn't a wonderful life, we can make it wonderful, but we all begin to run down and to deteriorate in health. That's just the way of the universe, isn't it? Uh, first and second laws of thermodynamics. If you study apologetics, and I happen to be studying, uh, boning up on my apologetics because of uh, the class I'm going to be teaching uh, beginning tomorrow night over at Greens Lake Road, uh, matter can, it can neither be created nor destroyed. And everything winds down. Entropy. We're not getting better, are we? The earth is winding down. People are winding down. Uh, Adam didn't feel as good at 900 as he did at 100. Right? I don't feel as good at 48 as I did at 28. And so I think that we all can say that. Whatever age we are right now, I didn't feel that good X amount of years ago. Right? Or I felt better, rather. And so, uh, <clears throat> we understand that, uh, uh, we, we can learn through the Bible why I'm here, where I'm going, right? And that was, made it one of the, one of the reasons it was the best time for Christ to come. We talked about some of the philosophers, uh, and their beliefs. Plato. He, he was getting close to the idea of a very personal God. Uh, Aristotle, uh, he taught that uh, the world was eternal and that matter had always existed. That's, that's a truth as far as matter uh, always existing after God created it. So he's getting closer, right? The earth's not eternal, matter's not eternal, but once God created it, it's not going anywhere until he decides to take it away. In and of itself, it cannot be created, it cannot be destroyed, it just changes forms, right? Same thing with energy, it just changes forms. And so they're always uh, getting closer. Uh, we had this philosophical belief system at the time, uh, 342 to 270 B.C., of this idea of Epicureanism, and uh, that taught uh, mental bliss. It taught situation ethics, personal, uh, you know, if it feels good, do it, and it led to this idea of hedonism, right? Uh, so it didn't matter. Physically, if, if you enjoyed it, you could do it. And, of course, uh, uh, you know, just the idea of hedonism, we understand what that means. It's been handed down over the years and years and years. <clears throat> A person who is hedonistic is engaged in the pursuit of pleasure, sensually indulgent. There are no lines you won't cross. You can do anything. And of course, we're talking about the Roman Empire. That's exactly what they were, wasn't it? Whether they were Epicureans or not, they want, they had no self-restraint whatsoever. And so this is the period of time, uh, not necessarily when Epicureanism began, but it carried on when Christ came into the world. That was... That was a, a philosophy uh, that a lot of people believed in. <clears throat> That's kind of the background so far where we got to. But let's continue to look at the state of Rome when Christ came into the world. It's very important to understand because that leads to the fullness of time. 
Um, another philosophical trend was Stoicism. We've heard the term Stoic, someone who shows no emotion. Stoicism taught there was no difference between pain or pleasure. You just Stoic. You didn't have a response, right? And uh, <clears throat> that was established by Zeno of Citium. He lived from 336 to 264 B.C. Uh, and this came about sometime around 300 B.C. Uh, th- this idea, though he, he came along a little later, or, or uh, uh, when he was about 36, I guess, he, he began to, or approximately 36, he began to format this philosophy system of this Stoicism. And, uh, you know, you're not affected by showing uh, any kind of passion whatsoever. No kind of feelings. No emotion. Right? Uh, is, that, is that a good way to be, by the way? Have no emotion? Have no passion? Uh, what about the, uh, the parent who shows no emotion or any kind of love or anything like that for a child? Is that good? When has that ever made a child better? Never made a child better. That doesn't mean a child can't overcome it, but it's never made anyone better. What about reading through the the biographies or the biographical accounts of uh, the Christ and we read how he was murdered and how he was treated and if that doesn't cause some kind of an emotion within me, something's wrong. So Stoicism really, I have a hard time believing that anyone was truly a Stoic. They may have been able to present themselves as having no emotion, but whether or not they did, I have, I have a hard time believing that, that all who portrayed to be that were that way. Now, are there some people in the world who do not have natural affection toward their parents or toward their children? Sure they are. Sure they are. It's sinful if that's the case. Uh, so if it's sinful, what that tells me about that, that uh, particular sin is it can be overcome. We learn to love, right? Uh, it's a shame when we have to learn to love our children. And I think that's a big problem. But that, uh, that uh, is born out of selfishness instead of selflessness, right? Uh, parents are selfless, or at least they ought to be selfless when it comes to their children. So Stoicism doesn't have the answers to any of these questions that have been asked up to this time. Any comments? Questions? Well, there was another philosophy that uh, was going around uh, within the Roman kingdom, and uh, uh, it's called pantheistic monotheism. Now, this was happening just prior to Christ's incarnation. Now, what this idea tells us, uh, pantheistic monotheism, teaches that God is simply in everything. He's in the rocks, he's in the trees, he's in the earth. He's he's in every, God is just everywhere, you know. And so uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? God's the creator of all things, so how can he be what he created? Well, that just doesn't make sense. And so uh uh you know, they thought that the whole universe was God. And, uh, but during Christ's time, people were also consumed with superstition during the time of this era. And, uh, 
All of these things lend it's lend themselves to it being the proper time for Christ to come into the world. <clears throat> now, prior to Christ coming, and we read about it throughout the Old Testament, there was this idea of you have a good God, you have an evil God. You have to try to ward off the evil God, and you have to try to please the good God. But it was arbitrary. Everything they did was arbitrary. If they wanted to punish or destroy the evil God, they just did it on a whim. It didn't matter how good you were, how bad you were. It made no difference. Same thing with the good God. If the good God wanted to uh, reward someone, they just rewarded someone. It had nothing to do with their uh, their goodness or their wickedness. They were just simply arbitrary. Now, uh, even at that time when uh, Christ was living in the world, and we just finished up a study of the Revelation, the Roman emperor himself, proclaimed that he was a God and that he was to be worshipped because they didn't believe in just a a single uh, being who was the creator of all things. Any comments? Well, let's consider the old Mediterranean paganism. That was a philosophy in and of itself, and it placed a very strong uh, emphasis on tradition. Now, is tradition wrong in and of itself? Is tradition within religion wrong in and of itself? Well, no, it's not wrong in and of itself. Tradition uh, of the modern congregation says we have a morning service and we have an evening service, right? The tradition of the modern congregation says we meet on Wednesday night. Very few congregations I've ever been to, in fact, zero that I can remember, don't have electricity or benches on which to sit. Most have water fountains in bathrooms. Now, I grew up in a congregation that we had electricity and we had uh, a big old natural gas tank out in the uh, side yard and we had these little heaters along the way. We didn't have any indoor plumbing. There was There were two outhouses behind the the building. And uh, I was terrified of those two outhouses. I didn't want to get close to them. I understood what they were, and I wasn't interested. And so, uh, but that you don't find that anymore, do you? You don't find that anymore. And so tradition in and of itself is not wrong. Uh, but when the tradition becomes the religion, now we've got a problem, right? And that was what was happening here. The tradition became the religion. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some traditions. Let's notice uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. If anybody comes across my little testament, please bring it to me. I can barely read this. And I can't find any books in it either. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Paul said, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Where did the command come from to withdraw? The name of the Lord Jesus, right? How'd they learn about it? 
Paul taught it, and it was a tradition that he taught. Did that mean it wasn't inspired? Absolutely not. He just traditionally taught that, right? And so tradition in and of itself uh, is not wrong. Now, there are different kinds of traditions. You have the traditions like the Pharisees had, right? They had uh, the oral tradition, and they said it's just as uh, valuable as the written law. They had 600 and something laws of their own. You know, the laws of washing hands and, and things like that. That was one of the things that that they were uh, getting on to Christ about, right? Your uh, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. He said, the outside doesn't matter, does it? It's what's on the inside that makes the difference. So, you know, the, is it a good tradition to wash your hands before you eat or before you cook? Amen. I think hygiene ought to really rank way up there with everybody, right? We go go to eat something, well, I want to make sure that someone's been washing their hands. But is it sinful not to wash your hands? Well, I hope not because about 90% of the world not going to make it because they're third world countries. And, uh, you know, water is uh, very valuable to them. They'll walk miles. When I've been to India, they'll walk miles for a jug of water. Do you think they're going to waste it washing their hands? Not normally. Not normally. Uh, that's drinking water, right? You've got to have water to drink. And so uh, that doesn't mean they're filthy. Yeah, they'll take baths. I've seen them, you know, wash off and things like that. And But the idea is, if you don't wash your hands, you can still go to heaven. And so there are different traditions, right? There are traditions uh, from man. There are traditions from God. God's laws are His traditions, right? And Paul repeated that. That doesn't mean it's not inspired. doesn't mean it didn't come from Him. And so, if, if the person doesn't walk after the tradition of which Paul taught, withdraw from that person. Let's also notice 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Let's back up just a little bit prior to making that statement. <clears throat> Paul said... Uh, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted, and they pleased not God and are contrary to all men. Let me see here. I think I must have written the wrong verse down. Am I looking in the wrong place? Oh, there you go. Let me, let me move over a little bit. If you find my little New Testament, please bring it to me. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So, what do we learn from that? What was the epistle? Yeah, he had, this is the second one he wrote to Thessalonica. So, that's an inspired document, isn't it? Whether you learn it from the inspired document or from our speaking it orally, which turns into tradition. Doesn't mean he's not inspired when he spoke it, right? <clears throat> when uh, uh, we read Acts chapter 2, that wasn't a sermon Peter wrote. Peter wrote 1st, 2nd Peter, the, the, the two epistles that hold his name. He wrote those. When he preached on the, on the day of Pentecost, he spoke that and someone else recorded it. And it was just as 
inspired when he spoke it as when Luke recorded it. So nothing is wrong in and of itself with tradition. But how do you determine which traditions to follow, which ones to make doctrine? You have to consider the source. You have to consider the source, right? Same thing when we consider works. Is it a work of man? Is it a work of God? Well, where did it originate, right? Did it originate from, uh, you know, <clears throat> the people? Or did it originate from God? We look at the plan of salvation. Those are all works. But they're works of God, not of men. Lest you have something to boast about, right? That's what Paul said in Ephesians. Any comments? Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, we're to come together every first day of the week, but there's a lot of that, and that's an example, isn't it? And that's how we, that's one way we determine authority, by example. So that was a tradition, wasn't it, of the first century Christian. They met on the first day of the week. Doesn't mean it's not inspired, doesn't mean it's not doctrine, but it was a tradition. It's an example. And so we gain authority from examples. Someone have something over here? I thought I had some, saw someone out of the corner of my eye. But that's a good point, you know. Tradition, uh, if it's from God, we see the source of it, right? And now, <clears throat> they also met in Acts chapter 2, in the very beginning, every day. So, is that something that is commanded? Is that a doctrine that we meet every single day? Now, that's just a good tradition that they upheld, right? That's a good tradition they upheld. Uh, <clears throat> they were commanded to meet on the first day of the week. How do we know the difference there? They were doing the same things other than taking the Lord's Supper and giving of their means. And I think therein lies the key, Right? Uh, they were to always remember what Christ did for them through taking of the Lord's Supper. So on the first day of the week, when you come together to break bread, do also what I told those in Galatia to do. 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, when you come together, lay by and store. So we know that there are two things that we have to do, and we can only do it on the first day of the week necessitating, and this is a uh, necessary inference, right? Necessitating that we come together. It's a commandment every first day of the week. Can we come together every day? We wanted to? Well, sure we can. We have Thursday morning Bible class here. We have a Wednesday night Bible class. They met every day. From day from, they met from house to house daily having fellowship meals, and studying the Word of God. So, that was a tradition that's not a commandment, but it's a good tradition, right? It's something that that was good, especially at that time. So, when when the leadership of any particular congregation says, well, we're going to have a second Sunday service, well, we need to be there. We're required to be there if we're going to be in submission to the leadership. What about when they say we're going to meet on Sunday night? You gotta be there. What about Wednesday night? You gotta be there. 
We're going to have a Bible study. We're here at Bible study. The leadership says we're going to have a Bible study. The writer of Hebrews said we're to be in submission to those who have the rule over us. Now, does that mean we have to go to every gospel meeting that's in the area? We don't, we're not commanded to do that. What about our own gospel meetings? If the leadership says we're going to meet this week every night and we're going to have a series of lessons every night, we're going to do it once a year. Are we supposed to be there? Well, we're commanded to be there now. Are there extenuating circumstances sometimes that you can't? Does God understand that? Absolutely. And that's between me and God, right? I can, He knows whether I can be there or not. Sometimes we have to work, don't we? And that interferes. Now that should be the exception not to rule, right? But that does happen. Does God understand? Absolutely He understands. And so, but we still have to understand that a tradition that is not based in God commanding you meet on Wednesday night is still something that has to be adhered if the leadership of the local congregation says we're going to do that. That's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. Submit to those who have the rule over you. And and don't make their job grievous, right? Don't make it a burden to them. Don't make them have to run you down and talk to you about it. Listen, let's be... Let's be faithful in every aspect of our lives and uh, not, not make men who step up and decide to be the leaders of the congregation, let's not make them regret it. Right? I think that's, that's the idea. Any comments? <laughs> Paul preached to midnight, Jane's going home if I do. Well, you know, and that was, because that's not doctrine, is it? That's just something that he did. I told, uh, uh, I was teaching fifth grade class back in Cordova one time, and I said something about I'm going to preach to midnight because Paul did. They said, listen, you're not Paul. You ain't come close to being Paul. And I said, well, I guess that's right. So anyway, traditions are not bad until they become the religion. That's what happened to the Pharisees, right? Their traditions became their religion. And now... What are we doing? We've got a whole nother religion on our hands. And that's what Paul was talking about. One, one of the aspects of that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, you've, you've gone after another gospel, which isn't a gospel, right? And then he went on to say, if you, if you, if you hear something other than what we've told you, and that's Paul speaking through inspiration from God, whether it's an angel or anyone else, You'll be cursed if you follow it. And so we have to be very careful about what we, uh, uh, about not allowing our traditions to turn into, uh, our religion, right? Now, we're not talking about the times that are set for worship assembly or Bible study. Those are set by the leadership. We have to be in subjection. But what about this? Someone says, Let's start meeting at 8 o'clock on Wednesday night. No, no, we can't do that. We've never met at 8 o'clock. We've got to meet at 7 o'clock. That's just wrong. Now we're allowing our tradition to become our religion, right? That's what he's talking about. We can't allow that to happen. Any comments? Questions?
Yeah, yeah. Sure, you know, because they're letting these other things come in. And that's kind of what the Pharisee says, uh, did. And Bobby's saying, you know, uh, allowing traditions to come in separates you from the Word of God, doesn't it? It'll separate you from the Word of God. Because now I'm focusing on this, these traditions, these oral traditions that I think is as, as credible and as worthy as what God had to say. Now I'm pushing God away. And that's a problem. That's, why, that's where a tradition comes in and causes a big problem. Now, this, uh, this old Mediterranean paganism, <clears throat> they were strong in a lot of areas. Now, when I say strong, that doesn't mean good, but they were strong. Uh, architecture, their buildings, uh, they were strong in their religious rites as far as, boy, they really put on a show. They were very similar to a modern day uh, Catholic congregation. They were very adaptable, okay? Now, what I mean by that is they could be very moldable. Some other idea come along, they'd incorporate that, right? Much like the Jews did when we, you know, we read through the minor prophets. That's what they would bring these pagan ideas into their worship. And now, you know, they're, they're going to go worship the God of heaven and they're bringing in all these other problems. And so the old, the old Mediterranean paganism had a whole lot of that. Now, most of that, are, most of those things that really are weaknesses as far as the theology goes, right? Because it's not, it's not God's religion. <clears throat> but they had some very, very strong, or very, um, strong weaknesses. Okay? For instance, <clears throat> they never examined the relationship between religion and life. They'd have a child born cripple. They may just take that child out and kill it. That was common in that time, right? Uh, so they never they never put together the relationship between religion and life. There was no association with morality and religion. You could be very religious and not be moral at all. Does that happen in today's world? I mean, people are religious and, uh, you know, they may even attend services. They may uh, be very active. And then all at the same time, they have another aspect of their life that's very immoral. Oh, that's, that's rampant. That's rampant in the Lord's church, right? That's something we have to be very careful of. Uh, it had also had the common weakness of superstition. Uh, it did not take and had no way of taking the terror of the grave away. That was one thing that uh, none of these religions could do. That's what they had in common. They couldn't take, you know, is uh, there may be an afterlife or may not be an afterlife. You know, may face something. I don't know how to get past this afterlife thing. You know, and you look through the history excuse me, of the cultures of the world. And you see a lot of them are trying to embrace this idea of an afterlife and, and how can I navigate this afterlife? You know, we think of the Egyptians. We get into the uh, uh, the tombs of the great uh, Egyptian leaders and you find them in the pyramids. And, and what do they have in there among these 
these kings that they buried. Well, they would even bury some assistants alive. Right? They would have uh, food. They would have armaments. They would have different things to help them navigate this afterlife as if it were a physical uh, approach, right? Well, they were missing it. Why were they missing it? Because their religion was myth. It was made up. It came from the ideas of someone, and over time they just grew and expanded they took a little of this from over there, a little of this from here. And then in every culture you see that. And they have a lot in common. You know what a lot of these religions have in common? They're ripping off the Bible. Ripping off the Bible, right? Uh, the, the universal flood. You see that in almost every culture. You go back. Where'd it come from? What do you have to have if you're going to have a counterfeit? You first have to have the real thing, don't you? If you're going to make a counterfeit tin, you've got to have a tin to start with, right? So uh, if you're going to make a counterfeit religion, you've got to have something to start with. What, how, what is, it is not in man to be able to come up with a way to save himself. How many of us here would have come up with the plan of salvation God came up with? None of us. None of us. And so... Uh, you know, uh, that's just a problem. Any comments? Brother Joe. <laughs> oh, boy. Absolutely. Brother Joe makes a comment. It doesn't take much to get, get a group of people off. You get a slick-talking, fast-talking preacher and very eloquent, very charismatic, and you'll have a whole congregation of people following that fellow. doesn't matter what he teaches. That happens in a lot of places. <clears throat> you know, how did how did the... Uh, once faithful congregations of the world go, get off track. Well, somebody brought a new and improved idea in, right? And <clears throat> because we are looking for those uh, answers to questions, and like Brother Joe said, we're, we're looking other than where we ought to be looking. You know, we're looking uh, to someone or something instead of looking to the Bible. Isn't that what happened to Israel when uh, Moses came down from Mount Sinai? He came down, they had a golden calf. They were looking for answers but where were they looking? In all the wrong places. You know. Uh, we need to look in the right places. And so, uh, <clears throat> I've listened to sermons of uh, men who claim to be members of the Lord's church. You know, you know I get to listen to that garbage. And, and I, you know, I'm thinking, man, this guy would be a great used car salesman. You know, he'd be a great used car salesman. Charismatic, eloquent. You like him instantly. And you have to be careful with that, right? You have to listen to the message. Listen to the message. You know, what's he saying? Uh, someone told me one time that he disagreed with something. I said, and he said, well, I like your style of preaching. I said, is that what you like about my preaching? 
I said, you're in trouble. What about the, the content of the message? The content of the message. Isn't that important? That's what is important, right? You know, not everybody is a great speaker. But if you're faithful, everybody's got a great message, right? You, you be quiet over there. <clears throat> and so we have to be careful with those things. Now, many of the people at, the, at this time would simply add Christianity to their other gods. That happens today. That, that's rampant in India. That's why it's so easy to go into India, or it used to be, the government's kind of changing a little bit. It's easy to go into India and preach because, hey, that's just another God. They've got thousands of them. But it does give you an opportunity to go in and be able to talk to them, right? Uh, Most people thought people who uh, were Christians were just simply ignorant people. Is that true? No, it's not true. Maybe the the individual outside of uh, inspiration might be an unlearned. We see that in uh, Acts 4.13, right? They uh, heard the teachings of Peter and John, knew they had been with Jesus, but they also knew they were from Galilee. And that was kind of a slur on them. They knew they were unlearned and ignorant. But <clears throat> Peter described the process of inspiration, Second Peter 1.21. Prophets of old spoke as the Holy Spirit moved them. They spoke as they were directed by the Holy Spirit during the time of the miraculous. But, uh, you know, at that time, the church would not uh, put up with error when it came into existence. That was a difference, right? They weren't going to just bring in something else. Uh, and it overcame the paganism of the day. Now, let's end on this thought. How was it that the church was able to overcome the paganism of the day? They knew it. They believed it, right? Let's notice some some characteristics. They outlived them. Now, here's what I mean. They didn't outlive them in years. They outlived them in life. They lived the life God wanted because they had conviction in their faith in their compassion, and in their love for one another. They had commandments to follow, which were not man-made, right? They had the Word. They listened to that. and weren't man-made. They could follow them with a good conscience, understanding where it came from. We have to understand why we can trust the Bible. That's what is such a wonderful thing about learning uh, apologetics. Really, apologetics is just defense. Defense against error, defending the Bible... Evidences, things like that. That's, that's what makes that so important in our lives. For us to be able to know, I've got a commandment here that didn't come from someone just like me. It came from a higher power. During the Nuremberg trials, how was it they convicted the Nazis? They were just following orders. They broke the law of a higher being. That's World War II. It's not been that long ago. Now look where we are. No one wants to talk about the law of a higher being now, but that's exactly what convicted the Nazis during the Nuremberg trials. They broke a higher being's law, and they were sentenced. They outthought the pagans. Christians were clear thinkers. They were sober-minded. They didn't go by feeling, right? That's a problem today. 
they outdied the pagans. What do you do with a bunch of people who are willing to die for their faith? Nothing you can do with them. Nothing. Zero. You can't kill them enough, can you? They outdied the pagans. They had the truth. <clears throat> Christianity offered people the things their false religions could not offer them, which was eternal life with God. So, here's where we're going to pick up next time. To properly understand church history, we have to begin with the church. And we're going to talk about some things about the church Sunday. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But we have to begin with the church, okay? We're not going to preach to the choir. But we still have to, to properly understand. We have to learn some things about the church. All right, any comments before we close? Thank you so much.